The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're in the Minor Prophets. We're in the book of Amos this morning. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So somewhere right in there, Amos is in the middle of that. I'll give you a minute to turn there. We'll look at the book of Amos together this morning. I've been doing a series in the Minor Prophets. I'm doing one week per prophet, so we're flying through them. But that's probably better that way. We didn't want to spend a year in judgment and woe, I don't think. Um, but what we're looking at in particular is, is seeing how these prophets looked forward to the Lord Jesus. These prophets had a message to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the nations around them. And the minor prophets, the book of the twelve that it was called earlier in its history, they're not called minor, once again I remind you, because they're unimportant. They're called minor because they're short in their length. All twelve of them could fit on one scroll. And what we've seen is, is that through the, so far, through the Minor Prophets, I, I've mentioned um, Jim Hamilton's book, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. So God is glorified when He brings salvation to His people through judgment. And this is the story of Scripture. This is the story of the Minor Prophets. God is going to judge His people and the nations around them, but in doing so, He's going to show mercy and He's going to bring salvation. And when He does it, He's going to do it in such a way that it brings him glory and him alone. It won't be the strength of chariots or horses. Today we would say armies, tanks, airplanes. It won't be the military might. It won't be uh, the ingenuity, the genius of man. It's going to be by the hand of God. Not by might nor by power, says in Zechariah, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He's going to do this. And so, in the book of Amos, today we're going to see the care of a holy and merciful God. And, and this is one of those things that we need to understand really clearly about who God is. He is completely holy. Righteous cannot abide sin. He can't abide rebellion. He can't wink at it. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't let you into heaven just because it's the good old boy club. He has to judge sin because of His righteous character. In fact, the reason we know what righteousness and justice is is because God created us in His image. And so when we cry out for justice, when we open up our newspaper and we see the, the evils of this world, we see terrorists who are killing people, we see people who are being taken advantage of, women who are being sold into prostitution and slavery, our heart cries out for justice. Because we're made in the image of God who's holy. And He's a perfect judge and He has perfect justice. But then, of course, if we're honest, we know that we deserve His justice as well. But this God who is holy and righteous is also completely loving. And He manifests this love in mercy and in grace. And here in the book of Amos, we see this. We see this, he's going to, basically he's going to uh, call Amos, who's a shepherd, he wasn't a, 
pastor. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a professional minister of God. He was a shepherd taking care of sheep. And God calls him from Judah, the southern kingdom, and He tells him to go to Israel, the northern kingdom, and to pronounce this prophecy against them. And so Amos does this. And when he starts, he starts by... If you were to look at a map and you were to see the compass, he goes around the compass and he lists all of the nations around Israel. And he says, I'm going to judge all those nations because of their wickedness and their evil. And you got to imagine the audience was like, Amen. Judge them. They're our enemies. But all of it is just preparation as Amos closes the net prophetically, as it were, and then zeroes in on Israel, the northern kingdom. And he pronounces God's judgment upon them for their wickedness. And we're going to see this, their evil. And he says God is going to judge them. He's going to send them into captivity. But even in the midst of all of the judgment that God proclaims in the book of Amos, there is this thread of of mercy. God giving them what they don't deserve. He promises that he's going to raise up the house of David that's fallen. And he's going to restore the dynasty of David, the house of David, and he's going to do it in the Messiah. And when he does it, not only is Israel going to be shown mercy and Judah going to be shown mercy, but all the nations of the earth are going to be shown mercy. And so this is what the book of Amos is about. The care of a holy and merciful God. In fact, Mark, Pastor Mark Dever, in his, he has a series through all the uh, books of the Old Testament And when he gets to the Minor Prophets, he starts asking questions. And the question he asks of the book of Amos, that the book of Amos answers is, does God care? Does God care about us? Or is He asleep at the wheel? And what Pastor Mark Dever pulls out of it is he says, yeah, God cares enough not only to show mercy, but He cares enough to judge sin and to reveal His character and to show His holiness and to set a standard for us. And so in Hosea, we saw that this picture of Israel's idolatry was basically pictured as adultery. Hosea was commanded to marry Gomer, and Gomer was a woman who was an adulterer. She was a prostitute. And he married her, and she sold herself into slavery because of her sexual sin. And God tells Hosea, you go and you buy her back. And what that is is a picture of my love for my people. I will never give up on them. And so Israel's idolatry is a spiritual idolatry. And we see that this was the issue was worship. In the book of Joel, we saw that this locust plague was connected with the curses of the the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel. Israel had broken the covenant and so God was going to judge them. And in the midst of a locust plague, God says there's a greater quote, locust plague that's coming called the day of the Lord. And I'm going to judge you for your rebellion and your idolatry and your sin. And here in Amos, God through the prophet Amos warns Israel to seek Yahweh. And he describes him, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2, as a roaring lion. Seek the roaring lion and live. What a, what a backwards picture. If we were out in Africa on the safari and we heard a lion roar we wouldn't be seeking it we would be running from it or we would be so terrified we would just stand there and get eaten here 
God says through the prophet Isaiah, seek me and live. We're going to see that. So what we see just through the minor prophets real quickly by way of review, God alone, Yahweh alone is his people's savior. We see this through all of the minor prophets. It's not their strength. It's Yahweh alone that is his people's savior. And his salvation, when it comes, it's going to result in his glory filling the entire earth. Everything that God does is for his glory. And those that Yahweh redeems are going to know him. They're going to know him personally. They're going to be able to draw near to him. And they're going to respond by worshiping him, rejoicing in him, and singing his praises. This is God's plan for all of human history. We've seen this at the end in Revelation 5. Every nation, tribe, and people in tongue will be gathered and represented around the throne, worshiping him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. God the Father and God the Son in the power of God the Spirit. And so Amos, this shepherd from Tekoa, a little village ten miles south of Jerusalem, says in verse 1, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This Amos, he's a a shepherd which I I could say we could even argue is a type of, of Christ, the good shepherd, who was the prophet Moses said was to come. Here he speaks the word of the Lord to the people. And he speaks to them and he tells them to seek Yahweh and live. To turn from their sin and turn to Yahweh. Now he didn't want to be a prophet. Over in chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, as he's talking to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. In other words, this wasn't my calling. My dad wasn't a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I wasn't a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So he says, This wasn't what I planned. This wasn't what I had for my life, but this is what God has called me to do. And he prophesied, if we look at the reigns of the kings that are mentioned, Uzziah and Jeroboam, this was a time when Israel was prosperous. They were wealthy. They had Tons of money, tons of relative peace around them. Yeah, their enemies were surrounding them, but there was no warfare going on. It was peaceful and prosperous. We're going to see it in the book of Amos. And so when he comes and speaks this judgment, it's to people who don't want to hear it. But in verse 2, the Lord says this. Amos, speaking for the Lord, says, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He pictures Himself as a roaring lion roaring so loudly and strongly that the pastures, the fields, start weeping and the mountain starts to crumble. The only time I've ever heard a lion roar is when I was a kid growing up in Vallejo. We had season passes to Marine World. Now it's called Discovery Kingdom, but... My buddy worked at, in the lion cages picking up the poop. And so we would go check it out and hang out. And those lions were so lazy. They didn't do anything, right? They had to always prod them to get them to try to do their tricks. But sometimes they would get mad at the trainers and they would roar. And it would just shake your bones. That was scary enough being on the other side of the cage from the lions. I couldn't imagine seeing a lion in the street. 
seeing a lion in the field. Here, this is the picture of Yahweh roaring in judgment. Roaring so fiercely that even the mountains crumble. And, and what's, what goes on is, is in this uh, book of Amos, as he roars, he's roaring as a warning. He's coming in judgment, but he wants his people to live and he seeks their life and not their death. So he says in chapter 3, verse 2, that he's known them. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth and therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. He says, I've known you. I've had a covenant relationship with you, Israel, that's been different than all the other nations of the earth up to this point in history. And I'm going to punish you for your sins because you broke that covenant. He wants to restore that relationship with him. And so in chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Verse 6 again of chapter 5. Seek the Lord and live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Seek me and live. See, and this is, this is what the Lord would, would say to you this morning if you're here hearing this. As He would say, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. So here in the first two chapters, he has basically judgment against the nations, like I said. He goes around the, the compass and he lists off the nations surrounding Israel and he condemns them for their sin. He condemns them for their wickedness and their cruelty. And Israel would have amen this. He says of uh, chapter 1, verses 3-5 to five of Damascus, the capital of Syria, he speaks to Damascus and the next prophecy, verses 6 to 8, he speaks of the Philistines. Gaza is their home. Verses 9 and 10, he speaks of Tyre, the home of the once powerful Phoenicians. Verses 11 and 12, he speaks of Edom, these mountain people that were related to Israel through Esau. He speaks to Ammon in verses 13 to 15 and Moab in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So he goes all the way around and he speaks to all the neighboring nations around Israel. And the common denominator to all of them, if, if we were to read through chapter 1 and 2, which we will in a moment, is that their sins were crimes against humanity. Their sins that are listed are, are crimes against human beings. Men and women. Let's listen to this. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bars of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Here you have Damascus condemned for their shamelessly brutal conquest. In fact, it says in verse 2 that it's, and it, it pictures it as they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So the, the tools they used to break apart the wheat when they threshed, he says, this is what you've done to the people of Gilead. We would say today they put them through the meat grinder. It's brutal imagery. Verses 
6 through 8, he says of Gaza, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and from him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. He says these Philistines, they took off whole peoples into slavery and sold them to Edom. The, the common practice of the day was to sell the soldiers in slavery in the midst of war. But here they took the women and the children and they sold them all into slavery. God says this is against them. He's going to condemn them and He's going to destroy them because of it. Verses 9 and 10, For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered a, a whole people to Edom, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. He says, Tyre, not only did you do what the Philistines did, you took whole peoples and sold them into slavery. You broke this treaty, this covenant of brotherhood that you had. The Philistines didn't have it, so in some sense it's understandable that they came in and pillaged and plundered and raped and murdered and took people and sold them into slavery, but we had a peace treaty and you came and broke it. 11 and 12, Edom for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and he cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever, so I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. He says, when you came in and you attacked, you didn't stop when they gave up. You continued to murder them and slay them with the sword and pursue them and your anger was not quenched. Verses 13 to 15 of Ammon, he says, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with tempest in the day of whirlwind and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together says the Lord, he says, you murdered pregnant women and ripped their bellies open to kill the kids so that they would have no inheritance so they wouldn't be an enemy anymore. You plan to exterminate the people by killing their children and their women. Moab, he says, for three transgressions, chapter 2, verse 1, of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of trumpet and I will cut off the ruler from its midst and he will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. As Moab came in and plundered, they ripped up the bones of the ancestors and burned them to just lime, to dust, destroyed them, to humiliate them, to mock them. And God says they're to be condemned. And you can imagine a crowd gathering around Amos as he's giving this prophecy in Israel, and they're enjoying what they're hearing. They're saying, yeah, God, go get them. Nuke them. They're our enemies. They're the ones who did this to us. It was my sister. It was my mother. It was my daughter that was murdered. Go kill them. In fact, he even turns to Judah. Their brothers of the southern kingdom. The kingdom was divided by this point. And verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, he says, 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So they would have even said, Yes, God, that's good. We, we broke from them. We're a divided kingdom now, and God, we're the ones who need the blessing, and they should get the judgment. So this is... This is uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, told a story I thought was pretty amusing. It, he said uh, a woman was attending an evangelistic meeting and was delighted when she heard that the preacher was going to talk about sin. And when he preached against strong drinks, she cried, Preach it, brother! And when he declaimed against tobacco, she cried, Amen! And then the minister's third point was a condemnation of gossip. She leaned over to her neighbor and said, Now that's not preaching, that's meddling. Right, this, is what, this is what was going on. Israel was saying, Yeah, go get them, God. Kill them. All our enemies. And yeah, even judge Judah. But then he turns in verse 6 of chapter 2 to Israel. And the rest of the prophecy is going to be against Israel. And you could imagine all of their pleasure turning to ashes in their mouth. Amos was probably not a popular man at this point. For three transgressions of Israel, chapter 2, verse 6, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who've been fined. What a picture. As God condemns them, Israel is pictured as practicing sexual immorality in the temple, dedicated to the God of Israel. They're living in luxury with the objects they extorted from the poor that they stole from them, and then they toast their success with the wine that's acquired from their corrupt legal system. That's the picture of Israel. And he says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And this has been the theme all throughout. And what does this mean? Three transgressions and for four. I think what he's saying here, and commentators disagree about this, but I think what makes the most sense is he says three is a number of, of completeness and wholeness. And he says three sins is a complete measure of sin that needs to be judged, but you've overflown it into four. You've gone beyond the bounds and now judgment is coming and it won't be revoked. It won't be withheld. And he basically tells Israel, you're just as bad as all your neighbors. You're, you're no different. You're just as bad as them. They did this in spite of God's mighty deeds on their behalf. Look at verse 9. They acted this way, but then God said, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? He says, remember what I did for you? I took you out of Egypt. And I led you in the wilderness and I brought you into this land and I destroyed your enemies that were here and gave you this land. And how do you repay me? You act just like them. 
judgment is coming. And so in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 2, he says his righteousness and his holiness and his justice demands that he punish them. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. doesn't matter how good a warrior you are, I'm going to destroy you. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who swift of foot shall not save himself. You can't outrun me. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Then in chapters 3 through 6, he unpacks this judgment and he condemns them for three things. Pastor Mark Dever, in that same sermon, he's helpful. He gives... He shows that God's judgment focuses on the people, His people, not just the people of Israel, but that they're His people and they've broken covenant with Him. Their leaders in particular, because the leaders were meant to be wise, godly men who led the people in ways of righteousness and they were the worst of the lot. And then He condemns them for their religion. They said they followed God in lip service, but really they worshipped idols. And so his people. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he calls neighboring countries Egypt and Ashdod to sit in judgment. He says, even your neighbors know this about you. He explains his judgment in verses 13 to 15. He says it's ultimately chapter 6, verse 8, because of pride. Because of pride, because of ego. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And isn't this what luxury gives us? Isn't this what wealth and prosperity and, and, and goodness wells up in us? Is Maybe I did this for myself. Maybe the reason I'm living this way is because I'm so great. I'm so successful. I'm a really savvy businessman. Or businesswoman. And pride creeps in and it is the father of many sins, isn't it? God hates pride. It was the sin of Satan who said, I will be like the Most High God. It's the sin of Adam in the garden who wanted to be like God. God hates pride, ego, self-sufficiency. And here he says, Israel, this is, this is the root of all of your problem. And it feeds into so many of your other sins. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge you through another nation. Chapter 6, verse 14. I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah, basically all over Israel. And we know in history it was the nation of Assyria that came in and conquered the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. Then he condemns their leaders. He says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this is amazing to me, it's not just the male leaders. It's the women also. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He calls them cows. Not because they're fat or because they're ugly, but because of their sin. It's a comment on their lazy, luxurious, self-indulgent lives and the fact that they sin against the poor and the needy and don't give to anybody who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, 
who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. He says, You oppress the poor and the needy, and you don't give to them, and I'm going to bring judgment. Wow. The leaders are going to be the first to go into exile. He says in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations. He says, verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent that for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. They live in luxury and they ignore the plight of the common people, the poor and the needy, and he condemns them for it. Charles Spurgeon, uh, pastor, famous Baptist pastor in London, England, one of, uh, one of my heroes of the faith. He lived in the 18th, uh, 1800s, the 19th century. One of the first sermons he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit was on this passage of Amos 6, verses 1 to 7. And he called it the scourge for slumbering souls. Now, he was a young man. He was in his 20s. I can't imagine. Uh, he just, he, and he wanted to preached to these people and he imagined them to be asleep in Zion and he set about to wake them up. And he said, there is a condemnation on the presumptuous because they're trusting in good works. There's a condemnation on the procrastinators because they're putting off repentance and faith in Christ. There's a condemnation on the self-indulgent because they neglect the poor and the needy. There's a condemnation on the careless because they give no thought for eternal matters. They just think about today. And he, there's a condemnation on the indifferent who don't care for those around them. Well, that's good. See, this is so easy for us to fall into this, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, oh, I care about the poor and needy, but then turn our backs to actually giving money or spending time or doing things to actually meet their needs. Well, I tweeted about it, put it on Facebook. That's enough, right? No, that's the same sin. The man who says, be warm and be fed, and does nothing. Those who are careless and give no thought for eternal matters, we just have a society that tells us, live for today, live for now. Have fun today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about eternal matters. We have a religious system in America that says, oh, don't deal with Christ today. Go have your fun and just put it off till before you die, till later in life. Procrastinate. God would say, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. God condemns their leaders for these things. And as the leaders go, so go the people. And this is convicting because it's easy for us to think about Israel a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago and say, well, these were people in history. This was a long time ago. This is the same God today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and he would condemn the same sins today. But today we have a greater hope, don't we? Because Christ has come. The Father did pour out his judgment upon Israel, but he's also, as we're going to see at the end of this book, he promises a Messiah who's going to come, who's going to restore the house of David. And he's done it. Christ came. And so if we're guilty of these sins, we need to repent and turn to Christ. And in Christ, we have full and complete forgiveness of our sin. And we won't come into the judgment of God. This is the good news of the gospel. And we can draw near to him. We can seek him and live, as chapter 5, verse 4 says. Then he condemns their religion. They love their sin, they love their religion, so they created a religion that let them have both. You can worship an idol, you know why? An idol doesn't speak back, it doesn't condemn you. And if it doesn't condemn you and it's silent, surely it must be saying, go ahead, that's fine, do it. God had given them many warnings. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 11, he says it. Yet they would not return. Look how many times he says it. Verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. It's not that he gave them a bunch of dentists. It means that they had health. Their teeth weren't rotting and falling out of their mouths. They didn't have dentistry like we do. So if you had full teeth, that was a sign of prosperity. Yet you did not return to me. He goes on in verse 7 and says, I gave you all of this abundance in your crops. Verse 8 yet you would not return to me. I warned you by striking you with blight and mildew. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, I sent you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. You didn't return to me, verse 10. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you and you didn't return to me. Verse 12, therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Wow. Wow. This is what he did. He warned them. He warned them over and over and they would not return. And what we understand by this is that trials are meant to turn us back to God. Are you in a trial right now in your life? A time of hardness and trouble in your life? It is meant to turn you to God. To trust in Him. To make you realize you're not the king of your world. And even if you are, your kingdom isn't that great. Turn to God and live, he says. And if we refuse to return in his mercy, he sends more trials. Our response, as I said, is to seek him and live. Seek him and live, he says. Verse 14 of chapter 5, Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you've said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And today he says, seek me and live. And how do we seek him? He says, believe in my son whom I sent. Believe in his finished work. Turn to him. Give your life to him. Bow your knee to him as king. And you'll be a part of his kingdom, which lasts forever. And moth won't come in and eat the clothing of this kingdom and rust won't destroy it and thieves won't break in and steal in this kingdom because it's an eternal kingdom and it's perfect and there'll be no more sin and no more sorrow 
Righteousness will reign there and we'll see perfect justice. So he says, seek him and live. That would be the message to you this morning if you're running from God and he sent trials into your life as a mercy. He cares enough about you to break up your little kingdom. He cares enough about you to bring you to the end of yourself to where you realize you can't save yourself. You need Him. And He says, seek Him and live. And so there's this vision of mercy in the midst of judgment. Chapter 7 to 9, mercy in the midst of judgment. He, uh, Amos then gives these visions. The first vision, verses 1 to 3, is a vision of locusts. Second is a vision of fire, verses 4 to 6. A vision of a plumb line in verses 7 to 9. A vision of summer fruit in chapter 8. And a vision of the Lord above the altar in chapter 9. And through these five visions, God demonstrates that judgment is coming, but He also shows mercy in the midst of it. In fact, in the first two, He relents. This is what the Lord God, verse 1 of chapter 7, showed me. Behold, He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they'd finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Again, verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, Oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. But then, in the next judgments, he says, I'm not going to relent. Verses 7 to 9, a plumb line. A plumb line was standing beside the wall. And you guys who are contractors know exactly what a plumb line is for. It's to make sure that wall is straight and plumb. This is, I think, a comment on that the Lord's judgment is going to be a just judgment. It's going to be perfectly straight, as it were. Perfectly just. It's going to be given exactly for the... For, it's going to be given just as their sins deserve. Verses 7 to 9. And then in verses... T, uh, um, Chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, when he starts to talk about this vision of the summer fruits, the Lord again does not turn aside. And he, he pictures it in chapter 8, verse 1, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. And silence. Wow, what a graphic picture. And I think this picture of the summer fruit is this idea that now is the time for judgment. The harvest has come. The basket is full and the fruit is ripe and the judgment is here. And then in chapter 9, this vision of the Lord standing beside or above the altar. Chapter 9, verse 1. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. I think the picture here is that this judgment is inevitable. 
It's inevitable. You see, and, and this judgment is a picture of the judgment day to come when Christ returns. It says in Revelation 19, he's going to slay his enemies by the word of his mouth. It's pictured as a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to judge in righteousness. And he's going to tread his enemies, enemies in the winepress of the wrath of God, Isaiah 61 pictures it. As if he is stomping the grapes of wrath. This judgment day is coming. But we know the gospel says there's good news in Christ that there is forgiveness and there is mercy and there is grace shown at the cross. And that's why the book ends, I believe, in verses 11 to 15 with a promise of restoration and blessing. Let me read it to you. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild as... It is in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Abundance, restoration. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit and I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. He gives a, a promise of restoration and blessing and so as complete, as thorough as this judgment sounds, there's still going to be a remnant. There's still going to be a remnant saved. And what a picture. This is exactly the passage that... James, the half-brother of Jesus, brings up in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And the question there was, as the apostles were preaching the gospel, not only were the, the, the Jewish people turning to Jesus as the Messiah, but Gentiles were being saved. And the question comes then, what do we do with these Gentiles who are being saved? And how do we bring them into our assembly and James replies and says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. I'm reading Acts 15, verse 14. To take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, with this, the words of the prophets agree. As it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord God who makes these things known of old. He says, this is the fulfillment in Christ. You see, that's why I had Chris read 2 Samuel 7 to you. God, David wanted to build a house, a building for God, a temple. And God said, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But it's not going to be a building. It's going to be a dynasty. It's going to be a legacy. It's going to be, it's going to be kings that rule on the throne. And the one who's going to come is going to rule forever. He's the Messiah. And then David, we didn't even read his response in chapter 7. Chris alluded to it in his prayer. He says, man, you've spoken, God, you've spoken of my house for a long time to come. Who am I that you would do this? And James picks up on this prophecy. And he says, oh, this was promised in the book of Amos. That God was going to rebuild the house of David and restore its ruins. And it wasn't only going to be rebuilt for the nation of Israel, but as we saw in Amos 9, all of the nations are going to come into it. And here you have Christ, the fulfillment of this promise, the King who's sitting, reigning, ruling as the descendant of David. 
And all the nations are coming in, and I think it also speaks to His second coming, that there's going to be a full restoration of this nation of Israel. Romans 9-11 through 11 speaks of this. God's not done with His people. All Israel will be, will be saved once the times of the Gentiles are complete. And I don't know how that's all going to work out, but Amos seems to be speaking of this, and he's pointing to this Messiah Jesus, and he's saying, now in this house of David that's rebuilt, all the nations are going to come in. All those nations that I promised judgment, chapters 1 and 2, that surround you, Israel, they all now have mercy as well. And this is what Paul spoke of in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, he says to those of us who are Gentiles, you were without hope and without God in this world. You were apart from the covenant, apart from the promises. But yet in Christ, you've been brought near. And God tore down the dividing wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And now we can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we can be part of this house of David, this house of Christ. The temple of the living God, the church of Christ that we are. And this is the good news. This is the hope we have. This is what God is doing in redemptive history. And this is His care and concern. You see, the cross is where His holiness and His mercy met. As I said at the beginning, God can't just sweep sin under the rug. He has to judge every sin. His righteous character demands it. And He's judged it one of two places. He's going to judge it on us. If we don't believe in Jesus, we will spend eternity separated from Him. Or He's going to judge it on Christ at the cross. In our place. And He offers you this gift. He so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, in those of us who are saved, Ephesians 2.10 says, we're His workmanship. We're His work of art. His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that He prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And so when God saves us, it's not just something for eternity in the future. He means to use us now, today. Do you remember he condemned Israel because they wouldn't care for the poor and needy? They were indulgent, lazy, and, and self-centered. God says, no, I've prepared good works for you, Christian. My masterpiece. And I prepared them in advance so that you would walk in them. So now walk in them. <laughs> this is why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he also said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to work and to will according to his good pleasure. So who works? We work. And God works. And God accomplishes his purposes through us. We're instruments in his hands. And so I think this is, this is the, the burden of the book of Amos is to say this is the care of a righteous and merciful God. He cares so much to warn us. He cares so much to demonstrate His righteous character in bringing trials in our life to turn us to Him so that we would seek Him and live. And He cares so much about us to gave His Son so that we wouldn't die and perish but have eternal life. And by believing in Him, we become His children and we can draw near to Him and be used by Him 
This is what he desires for us. This is what we're going to celebrate as we come to the table now. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word. Forgive us, Father, for our sins of presumption and procrastination and self-indulgence, Father. Forgive us for pride and ego. We want to bow our knee to Christ. We want to say, you're our Lord. Here I am. Any way you would want to use me, any way that you would see fit to, to use me for your kingdom, Lord Jesus, I'm at your disposal. All that I am, all that I have, my lips and my mouth and my time and my money, my family and my resources, all of it is yours. Father, use us as a church in our community. May we not merely give lip service to the name of Christ, but Father, may we love our neighbors as well as words. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.